Our scripture passage this morning is going to be from 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version translation. These days we routinely say, so you can turn in your analog Bible or you can turn to your digital Bible. (laughs) Reading the Word of God, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. Rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray. Father, we know that it honors you to give faithful attention to your word. Uh, Believing and confessing that it's inspired by your own spirit, uh, given under the authority of Jesus Christ, uh, in order that in studying it and learning it and submitting to it, uh, we might enjoy all the blessings of grace, that we might continue to find your work Uh, strong within us, that we might also be ably equipped uh, to live in a world that's very, very broken. We would pray for all of these graces and blessings to come as we listen to your word. We'd also pray that we would keep our eyes fixed on your son, our Lord Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and that we might run the race that is laid out before us with perseverance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've realized this as you've thought about the New Testament and perhaps read through the New Testament, but there are actually five messages to the church at Ephesus in the New Testament. First of all, there's the book of Ephesians. But secondly, there's 1st and 2nd Timothy. Timothy is the resident pastor Uh, at Ephesus as Paul is writing these two letters to him. Uh, Thirdly, there's the message that Paul gives to the elders of the Ephesians church at the port city of Miletus on the uh, Asian Minor coast 
when in Acts chapter 20, uh, on Paul's returning to Jerusalem, uh, stops there on his sea voyage, calls for the elders to meet him at Miletus, the elders of Ephesus, and then you have a message that he gives to them, which they're going to share with the church at Ephesus, Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. And then don't forget uh, the first of the seven letters that Jesus uh, gives to the churches in the book of Revelation is the uh, letter to the church of Ephesus. Now what's interesting, if you were to carefully read all five of these messages, uh, you would be struck with how often two themes clearly show up as a common concern. Uh, First is the concern for false teachings, which have every power to hurt and to cripple and to some sense sow the seeds of destruction for the body of Christ. The second is the concern for love. Uh, We find that the theme of love, in its positive sense, is actually part of every one of these messages which um, God has inspired to be given to the church at Ephesus. Now, if we were to put those together properly, we could easily say in a positive sense that what we find as a shared concern in every one of the messages to the church at Ephesus is a concern for God's truth and a concern for God's love, which, when you think about it, it's both God's truth and God's love which are the fundamental elements of the gospel concerning Jesus Christ. It is always about truth. It is always about love. The heart of the gospel, the core foundations of the gospel, are always connected to truth and love. Now, um, that should not be unfamiliar to any of us. Uh, think about John's gospel, the gospel of John. Um, in John 14:6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And then when Jesus gives his faithful uh, testimony before Pontius Pilate, he says to Pilate, everyone who is on the side of truth listens to me. And then, of course, the verse everybody knows, believer and unbeliever, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So these twin concerns, uh, God's truth and God's uh, love, are are, are really like inseparable twins, twins that are born, twins that are, as we say today, conjoined. But this is not a tragic conjoining of two babies coming out into the life. This is the wonderfully inseparable joining of two things that are absolutely essential to the gospel, God's truth and God's love. Now, I, I emphasize this because the whole book of 1 Timothy, uh, the Apostle Paul is going to be laying out implications and applications of these twin themes. In fact, if you were to look at verse 5, you would see that everything that Paul is aiming at is love. In all of his teaching, the goal of his instruction is love, or the aim of his charge is love, as the English Standard Translation presents it. 
That's significant. Very significant. The twin concerns of truth and love. Because, in fact, we are living in a culture that prioritizes supposedly one over the other. Love is better than truth. Nobody really has the truth. But we can all have love. Um, This is important because we have within the heritage, as I'll get into in a little bit, of American Christianity, the de-emphasizing, de-prioritizing of truth in favor of love. Which means that that kind of Christianity has very little to say to the non-Christian culture that prioritizes things the same way. No, what we see and what we're going to be instructed in and what we're going to be reminded in as we go through 1 Timothy is that this concern of truth is matched with a concern for love because they are both inseparable. And we distort the gospel. We distort God's revelation to us concerning Christ when we separate these two things. What God has joined together, let no man ever separate. They are married together in such a way that it's to our benefit, it's to our blessing, it's to our boon that we keep these things separated and pursue the truth and love. Now, looking at this passage, um, the first 11 verses, there are three particular ways I outline to present this concern that we as Christians should be very much concerned. We should have as our central concern the relationship between God's truth and God's love and to live it out in our lives. Um, Three things that show up very quickly. Um, We need to think about, in light of all of this, the right way to care about others. We need to think, we need to secondly uh, be concerned about the right way of thinking about things, especially gospel things. And then thirdly, we need to be concerned about the right way of living in terms of living in accordance with the gospel. So you can summarize the first 11 verses by right caring, right thinking, right living. We need to care rightly according to the truth of the gospel. We need to think rightly according to the truth of the gospel. We need to live rightly according to the truth of the gospel. Now, I had this whole sermon just about finished and recognized that there's only time to do the first point. Thinking, excuse me, caring rightly. And so that's all we're going to look at this morning. We're only going to look at the first point of this three-pointed sermon. Probably next week, just the second point of this three-part sermon, probably the week after that, the third point. But what we find in this passage, the very beginning of this passage, is something connected to the gospel. And it has everything to do with right caring. Caring for each other according to the truth of the gospel. That's what we're going to be looking at. Now let me state it this way. Um, The gospel's concern for both truth and love 
would direct us as Christians to be very relational and very personal without committing the fallacy of thinking that doctrine stands in the way. Let me repeat that. The thrust of the gospel, and we're going to see this in what Paul says here, the thrust of the gospel would always be promoting us toward love and care, being relational, being personal toward one another, without committing the fallacy of thinking that a high regard for doctrine is somehow going to stand in the way. Now, you'll see the importance of my putting it that way in just a few minutes. The point is, is that you and I as believers, we need to care deeply for each other. Those who God has put together as a spiritual family we need to be deeply committed to caring for one another in, in tangible and personal ways, but not think that a love for the truth and a love for doctrinal truth is something that really stands in the way of that happening and that being achieved. Okay? Now, how do we see this in the text? I find it in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Simple statement. Paul says to Timothy, he addresses Timothy, and he says, my true son in the faith. Now, what you have to do here is to think about everything this says about the Apostle Paul and about his relationship with Timothy. Now, you may not have studied that relationship. You may not have read your New Testament enough to really understand the history that lies between the Apostle Paul and his young mentoree, Timothy. But just stop and think. Here is the Apostle Paul calling this young man, much younger than he is, my true son and the faith. Now, are these not terms of endearment? Are these not words of affection? Do they not describe love and care that Paul has for Timothy? It would be impossible to think about Paul and Timothy having read this statement and think, oh, he's just a teacher to a student. There's no really, there's nothing going on there. No you'd have to realize that, that they have something deep that they share. Paul looks at Timothy like a father would look, for a, look at a beloved son. And it's the true son in the faith, that the deep connection there is the bond they have in Jesus Christ. They've had years and years and years of associating together. Their lives, they have been in each other's lives for a couple of decades. But what I want you to note is that in reading your New Testament, you recognize that this bond that Paul has with Timothy, as exceptional and as wonderful and as strong as it is, this is not unique in the Apostle Paul's life. 
That is to say, Timothy isn't the only person the Apostle Paul has ever really cared about. In fact, Paul's relationship to other believers and how he cares about them shows up in some way in every one of his letters and in many ways it shows up as a dominant, dominant theme. I'm going to point that out shortly. But first, why is this so significant? Why should we place this emphasis upon the Apostle Paul and his testimony of having this deep love and care for Timothy and other Christians? Well, let me give you a bit of history, American history, American evangelical church history, so you can put this in its proper context. The American Bible-believing church culture has a great prejudice in many places against any strong emphasis upon doctrine. In America's history, there have been several denominations that got started and then continued on the idea that doctrine divides but love unites. We just need to love Jesus and we just need to love each other. Because we all know that when Christians begin to love doctrine and when they begin to love doctrine and truth, they're going to go on this mind trip and they're going to become unloving and uncaring people. So we need to forget the mind. It's all about the heart. It's not what we think about Jesus and it's not what we think about God. It's what we feel. It's what makes us feel something here in our hearts. Now, that description, I'm not making it up. I'm not being unfair in how I describe this. Many of us know this is true because many of you came from such a background. Some of you have shared with me that it is like they have escaped from this background. They've come into uh, a doctrinal and reformed Christianity, uh, especially the, the gospel-rich doctrines of grace, and it's been like an escape from a mental and emotional prison. Now, as I said, this anti-doctrinal approach, the anti-educational and anti-learning approach, it's deeply embedded in the American experience, especially the frontier westward movement expansion of the United States. So in the past few days, I got reacquainted with my church history knowledge of this period of time in American history by rereading a book that I read, passages out of this book that I read 40 years ago during my seminary days. You'll love the title. Bible in Pocket, Gun in Hand, The Story of Frontier Religion. Now, I'll have to tell you, it was not an assigned church history text, but I enjoyed reading that book more than anything else, practically, during my seminary days. Uh, it was an interesting, it was a fun kind of read, because there's many things in it that are hilarious, 
but it also points out something that is incredibly tragic about American evangelical Christianity. Um, I want to read a section uh, from what Mr. Ferris, the author, has written, which indicates how little regard there was in this westward movement of Christianity, how little regard there was for the education and training of preachers. In fact, even a prejudice against it. So he writes, Some preachers undertook a few courses of reading under an older preacher, but it was generally considered that if God called a man to preach, that meant he was ready. A Baptist group in Mississippi went on record with the rather prevalent position, if God, quote, wants a learned Moses or Saul of Tarsus, he will have qualified them before he calls them to his work. This group challenged the world to show any divine authority for sending a man to school after God had called him into the ministry. A Tennessee association as late as 1835 opposed education of the ministry on the grounds that it implied inadequacy of God and his power to call and equip ministers. The people as a whole regarded preaching ability as the gift of the heart rather than the gift of the mind and held that religion was caught, not taught. Preparation of sermons was usually left to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit at the time of delivery. Now, by and large, this idea characterized the Christianization of the frontier movement. Uh, for the, all the way in the 1800s, all the way up until the Civil War time, and even in the far west in a couple of decades after the Civil War, Beyond the original 13 colonies, those who took the Christian faith westward, for the most part, had no formal training, not even in the Bible, sometimes no education beyond barely being able to read. Now, Mr. Ferris also shares a number of stories about how men were called to preach in, in such a context like this. How were they called? How were they approved to be preachers? And then what did you do if someone was called but he wasn't approved? So generally speaking, a man would claim to have a call. Often the claim to call would come in a vision. And so then what the church would do was they would say, okay, we'll, we'll give you a trial. You preach for us, and then we'll judge whether you are, in fact, uh, called of God to be able to preach. So a trial sermon. Then afterwards, though, there would be an examining committee. And the examining committee would have to decide whether this man was called or this man wasn't. But what would you do if you thought a man wasn't called? You couldn't disqualify him on the basis of ignorance, generally speaking. Because education and training were never a qualification and being ignorant was not something that automatically disqualified someone most of the time. But one time the committee had one good-intentioned applicant who did the preaching, but the committee meeting afterwards judged he had far too little going on upstairs. 
they were trying to figure out a way to reject him. So they did so on the basis of his huge feet. He wore size 13 shoes back in the day when the average male wore a size 8 or 9. They quoted to him the scripture that backed this up. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful are the feet of them who preach the gospel of peace and bring good news. Now, the young man, now this is history, folks. The young man was deeply puzzled. How could scripture be inconsistent with this vision that he got from this angel that came to him during the night? He was helped to understand that he was in bed. His feet were covered. The angel didn't see. And the angel made a mistake. And so the young man went away a bit puzzled, but had to become convinced that sometimes in the spirit world, these mix-ups will occur. Now, when a man's education or lack thereof, training or lack thereof, could never really be the issue of disqualifying a man for the ministry, the church often resorted to this kind of scripture twisting in order to say to a man, you can't be what you think you're called to be. Now, a further point, though, about this American heritage, it has not disappeared. It's strongly prevalent. Uh, Here in the Bible Belt of California in Bakersfield, the largest church comes directly out of this heritage. Uh, If you were to check their website and to um, do a little background research on their founding pastor, you would not be able to find any place where he received any kind of formal training. Obviously an incredibly capable man. But the inherent weaknesses of that approach to prioritize a prejudice against learning and training in favor of experience and love is that ultimately churches like this have nothing definitive to say to a culture that also says we find our ultimate experience to be our source of truth. We find our views of love to be our moral guidance. We have other churches in the Bible Belt here in California who say very strongly, doctrine is divisive. It will drive out the love of God and the love of Jesus. We need to focus on loving deeds, not divisive creeds. Deeds, not creeds. Now... That background helps us to understand the significance of the Apostle Paul and why the the lesson here is we must be highly relational, loving, caring Christians without committing the fallacy of thinking that doctrine is the enemy of love. So, the Apostle Paul The Apostle Paul, who writes to Timothy, 
my true son in the faith. Christ chose Paul and commissioned him to write more than half of the New Testament. Paul wrote doctrine. He writes doctrine about Christ, his new covenant revelation. Next to Jesus, listen to that very carefully, next to Jesus, Paul writes the most about the deepest ideas of predestination and election. He doesn't say as much as Christ does, but he's the next most prolific author in the New Testament about the deepest ideas that you can possibly imagine. He has much to say about total depravity, how wretched and sinful human beings are. Uh, He's given us an extensive understanding of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul has a lot to say about the deity and the humanity of Christ and in the lordship of Christ. And it's out of the Apostle Paul that we actually have this extensive vocabulary concerning grace. Uh, You know, the grace of election and the grace of calling and the grace of regeneration and the grace of justification and the grace of adoption and the grace of sanctification and the grace of glorification and the grace of perseverance. This wonderful vocabulary of grace is credited to the writing of the Apostle Paul. We learn from Paul's teaching how it is to live the Christian life in godliness and holiness. Paul is exceptionally doctrinal. Paul places the highest value on believers knowing and understanding the truth of God's word. But this man, who's so full of doctrine, was a man of the deepest relational commitment and love to all of his church family members, not just to Timothy. And we can see dozens and dozens of places which prove this. We would not even have to look at 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul writes the love chapter, defining what love is like. I want you to think of just two places. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 8. All the way through Philippians, you see evidences of Paul's deep love toward the Philippian Christians. But listen to this. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Paul is unashamed as a man to say, I love other people. I love them deeply. And it's my first prayer for you that you would love and grow in love and grow in the knowledge of love and the discernment of love. And then right in the heart of his letter to the church at Ephesus in chapter 3, beginning at verse 14, we have a more expansive prayer that Paul gives, verses 14 through 19. And this is what he says there. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love. That's Paul's doctrine, that Christians are to be rooted and grounded in love. And may have strength to comprehend with all the saints 
What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ? This is Paul's doctrine, that we are to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that we might be filled with the fullness of God. Paul's great passion. Believers to know and to grow in love. Now here is the truth. We find in the Apostle Paul, who is the greatest intellect of the church ever, and who shows the greatest intellectual commitment to God's truth, to God's doctrine, here we find in the Apostle Paul no conflict from being that kind of a man intellectually and a great passion for the truth with an equally great passion and calling to love others in the body of Christ. No conflict. The greatest mind that God gave to the church coupled with the greatest heart that God has given to the church. Now listen very carefully to this. There is no conflict between doctrine and love except where sinful human beings choose to create it. Quote me on that. There is no conflict between biblical doctrine and biblical love except where sinful human beings choose to create it. That's why in our heritage, our Protestant and Reformed heritage, we have always made both the doctrine taught in Scripture and the love of God revealed in Scripture as inseparable twins. This is why Paul says in verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. Or as it says in the New American Standard in the NIV, the goal of our instruction is love. Now, the conclusion is this. As it is for Paul, so it ought also to be for us. We need to be committed to right caring, caring that is in accordance with the truth of the gospel. We need to be loving human beings. We need to be relational human beings. We need to be caring for one another within the body of Christ and always believing that as we pursue to love one another, our love for the truth will never be in conflict with that, but will always be something that moves us and motivates us and trains us and enables us to do it more faithfully. We live in a world where the destruction of truth has led to a counterfeit kind of love. Do you see it? I remember feeling the power of that in a song that I heard in the 70s about a woman who was committing adultery with a man who said this. It was a popular song, number one song. If loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. 
And that's why in the Obergefell decision back in 2015, all sorts of Christians out there were saying, today, love wins. Destroy the truth, and what you think about love will fall so far short of the love of God revealed in His Word and demonstrated for us in Christ. We are to live in such a way with respect to other Christians that we love them and we care for them deeply because they are our spiritual family in Christ. May we have the same heart and attitude toward one another that Paul had toward Timothy, our dearly beloved friends in the faith. Amen. Father, help us to uh, always see the greatness of your truth and the greatness of your love as those things conjoined together permanently and preciously to the growth and benefit of our own lives. May we be faithful to bear witness to this and how we care for one another. In Jesus' name, amen.